Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Greetings. Welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, here talking on the Monday after the race at Watkins Glen International. We are joined by NASCAR and NBC analyst, pit reporter, driver, jack of all trades, Parker Kligerman, and he was at Watkins Glen, so he uh, got back late night and up early to tape the podcast, and I really appreciate you being here, Parker. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Always love being on the uh, NASCAR and NBC podcast and going into the deepest topics in the sport or even just diving deeper than uh, we would anywhere else. So looking forward to it. I always love having you. And we certainly have a lot to dive into on this day after Watkins Glen International, namely because of the final restart involving Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson, Hedrick Motorsports teammates. Chase Elliott has the lead, chooses the outside. Kyle Larson is on the inside and decides he's not going to let go of his position. They make contact. Kyle Larson goes on, wins the race. It's the second Cup Series victory this season for Kyle Larson, and both now have come at the expense of his teammate Chase Elliott. The first mm-hmm. was at Auto Club Speedway in Fontana much earlier this year, in which he threw a block on Chase Elliott that didn't work out so well for the number nine car. He wrecked that time. This time he didn't wreck. One again to that part of it, but let's just first start with your driver, Parker. You're a winning driver in the Truck Series and also racing the Xfinity Series. So I'd love to get your perspective on what happened, but also I I understand you were there kind of post-race. So you saw what was going on as Chase and Kyle emerged from their cars. So maybe give us a little bit of perspective of what you saw post-race there and what you saw in the incident. Yeah. So I was staying on pit road and I saw Chase pull up, you know, where they go two through five, sort of pull up in a line. And that's where we interviewed the drivers. And I was not tabbed with getting Chase. I was going to get AJ Allmendinger, but I was standing there and I watched Dave Burns go to get him. And Chase, you know, you always give the driver like a little bit of time. Sometimes they're immediately like out of the car, ready to talk. Sometimes they just want a minute, right? Like maybe it's to have some fluids or whatever, right? And he immediately got out, you know, did that stretch, sort of looked over, looked at Kyle Larson celebrating, and then immediately walked away. And Dave went after him. And he's like, hey, just give me a minute. Give me one minute. And he walks and he runs into Tyler Reddick, who I think was laughing about something. And then Tyler realized he was not happy <laughs> and then <laughs> moved on. And then it, he found Jeff Gordon and I just saw immediately, you know, he was like, there was a discussion happening. Right. And it looked pretty stern and pretty serious. And so, yeah, I mean, Hey, look, he dominated. He was uh, definitely, you know, he's the fastest car all weekend. He was on the pole by a significant amount compared to his teammate there, Kyle Larson. And, in talking to the Hendrick guys, he had a real leg up on everyone through the bus stop. Uh, it was about two tenths almost in qualifying. They felt like that he was faster through that section that no one could match him there. And so he was just the class of the field and on a late race restart, got the race taken away. Right. So you can understand his uh, frustration, just even if it wasn't his teammate diving in the teammate side of things. 
that's where it gets to become a discussion of, you know, how do you race your teammate? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's always a discussion when I was at Penske, you know, there was clear directive, which was race each other's hard, like you would anyone else, but absolutely do not wreck each other. Right. Like that was always the Penske directive of you can race and we're going to let you race, but you just better not hit each other. So think about that, you know, like get to 99, 99.9%, but don't hit each other. And I think that's a pretty consistent thought process amongst most owners, right? Like you're not going to hold back. You have multiple drivers and teams because it gives you a better shot of winning and it's, you know, economies of scale there, but you also don't want to hold back their competitive fire because you've hired them because they are those competitors, right? So, you know, you know, there's going to be times unlike other sports where your teams are directly in, you know, competition with each other, um, which makes racing unique. And so I think the way I always viewed being a teammate was that I just would race you how you race me, right? Golden rule. Basically, I don't, I don't see that about any, you know, I don't say that just about teammates, just everyone, but teammates, especially like if you are a teammate that doesn't want to, work with me and doesn't want to give me info and, you know, doesn't want to be an open book and sort of be teammates and you're going to race me aggressively, then I'm just going to do the same thing. Right. But if you're a teammate that works with me and, you know, you know, we, it's a two-way street, then, you know, that that's an open two-way street. And I think in terms of racing etiquette, you know, it, it comes down to what, you know, what respect you have for each other. Right. So I think in this situation though, I kind of agreed with Kyle in <laughs> that he was like, look, the outside works. Right. But it leaves you open for what exactly happened. And, right. you know, if, if you're Chase Elliott, you've had the clear cut dominating speed. You've been the best. You just got to nail that restart and it's yours. Right. Or you do it to Kyle and he's never going to say a word because you were the do- you were the first car anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's your race to win. It's his to take from you. So I, I think that when Chase looks it all back, we'll have, you know, he'll have to sort of think about that decision of taking the outside versus, you know, being on the inside and be more protective, even if it's your teammate, right? I, I think you got to protect yourself in this day and age because these restarts double file, you know, really hard to pass you know, Kyle and him were so evenly matched times in those last 20 laps that, you know, I think they both knew the only way Chase was losing that race is if he got moved on a restart and he opened that door. You led me exactly on what I bring up about Kyle Larson. His take was... And I knew that was kind of my only opportunity. Um, I'm not proud of it. Um, but you being in the inside lane or the right lane and you being the leader choosing the left lane, it's it's definitely, you know, wins out. Um, but when it gets late in the race, it's definitely risky. And like I said, I knew that was my only opportunity to, uh, to get by him. So, um, you know, I felt like our cars were pretty equal today. And... Had a lot of fun after the green flag cycle, trying to chase him down and um, kind of burnt my stuff up a little bit. But the uh, the restarts, you know, kept me in it and kept our team in it. So uh, proud of our guys. Um, good to get another win here at Watkins Glen. Uh, get some more bonus points, loading in the playoffs, which is we haven't had many of those this year. So um, you know, hopefully this will build on some momentum and we can uh, keep racking some more points. So if the shoe was on the other foot, would you want to have a conversation with your teammate if that move happened? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, we would. We would ultimately have a conversation. Uh, you know, we have a competition meeting tomorrow, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think if I was in his shoes, I would, I would understand the risk that I'm taking choosing left lane. Also, so again, like I said, I'm not proud of it, but um, it's for what I felt like I had to do to get the win. Yeah, it's just uh, part of part of racing. It, it uh, road courses, especially this year, it seems like so. 
you know, again, not proud of it, but um, we did what we had to do. He really went into it in the media center. He said he essentially had made his mind up in the Xfinity race a day earlier, which he won. Zach Sternale with NASCAR.com. Kyle, um, obviously the contact with Chase there uh, going to turn one. You know, I had the restart before and, and I got kind of put in a bad spot because you know, he had the, the dominant position on me with the nose ahead. And every time I was in the right lane yesterday in Xfinity, I was in the same spot and I would always get pinched into the curb and a lot of times I got passed um, by the time we got to turn two. So I uh, figured it was probably going to be the last restart of the weekend, and I told myself if I if I had a nose ahead of him before we got to the braking zone, I was going to have to try my best to, to maintain that and not let him get a nose ahead of me and, and you know, pinch my corner off and in my chance of winning. So um, I had a good restart, and I got got in there you know, hot and did what I had to do to, to win. So, uh, you know, again, I'm not, not – necessarily proud of it especially with a teammate but I, I feel like I had to execute that way to to get the win so Kyle Larson basically said look I know the outside is better for the leader but if it comes down to the last restart and I have a nose ahead sorry Chase you might be my teammate but but I'm not lifting and letting you pinch yep. me is is that fair and I guess as a driver like that's what I was sort of curious watching this like if you are the leader and you know this might be the restart why not just take the inside yeah I I think that's it's a question I would love to know as we get through this week, you know, maybe a little bit more la- to be elaborated on by Chase, you know, that decision, right? Or as we get into next week, just be like, how do you make that decision? And I think that's the decision that sticks out to me, right? It worked on the restart before, mm-hmm. but Kyle then had the opportunity to do what he did, which was go further in the braking zone, force you to not be able to turn in. And at that point, you know, he's controlled the corner suddenly, right? Like it just gave him a lot of control and put you in a vulnerable position. Whereas I know his thought process may have been like, if something happens on the inside, I've got the outside to just run off that runoff and take off. But I just don't think it puts you in a vulnerable position. And I can agree with Kyle in the fact that like, if I won that race that way against a teammate, I'd have the same opinion. Look, I'm not proud of this, but I'm here to win for the five team. And, you know, my individual set of guys and my, you know, for my reasons, and I didn't wreck, my teammate to do it. I just didn't give him all the room or, you know, everything he needed to beat me on the last restart. So Chase's take on all this is, I think, fair to say amusing. Uh, In his post-race interview with Dave, as you mentioned, after he gave Dave the one minute sign, he eventually did go over and talk to Dave. And Kyle says that uh, he's not happy about the way it happened. He also said if he was in your shoes, he would have understood the risk of restarting on the outside there. That was the question that I had for you. Did you consider that risk on the final restart? Uh, just a huge congratulations to Kyle and everybody on the five team. Uh, congratulations to everybody here at Motorsports for getting another win. And uh, appreciate Kelly Lidbook for being on our car this weekend. He says this will be discussed, obviously, in competition meetings. And between the two of you, what would you like to say to him? Congratulations. He did a great job. Seriously, they deserve it. And uh, looking forward to going to uh, Bristol next week and, and trying to get with our team. One of your first conversations was with Mr. Hendrick. Uh, was he able to console you at all on, on the loss today? I uh, just congratulate him. Like I said, uh, always always good to see HMS win. The boss deserves uh, you know all the wins and all the great things that uh, that go on with this company. So just uh, proud of that, and looking forward to uh, looking forward to next week. And he also has these curious references to racing next week at Bristol, both in this pit lane interview with Dave, and then again in the media center. Today's done and. Uh, just thinking about Bristol and what I, what I need to do to be to be good there. there. There is nothing I can do about today now. So had a you know had an opportunity to add to that today, but didn't. So we'll go to Bristol and, and try to add to it there. Chase, uh, 
ChrisKnightCatchFence.com. Going to Daytona next week. Do you enjoy going to Daytona knowing the speed the Hendrick Motorsports cars have had on the... I don't know why I keep saying Bristol. We're going to Daytona. Yeah. My bad. Um, yeah, for some reason, I have Bristol on my mind. I don't know, don't know why. But uh, So I'm wondering what you make of all of that. Was that subliminal messaging? Was it Freudian? Like... <laughs> What's going on there for Chase? And is it fair to say that underneath all of this brave face, he was definitely seething about things? I think he was upset, you know, frustrated, probably. Yeah, that's natural. I mean, he's a competitor. He wants to win races. And as I said before, he was dominant, right? Like, I mean, he was the clear-cut best car there all weekend. Um, There was no touching Chase Elliott in any category. So, oh, to add into that, you also have the craziness of stage one, which they fought through. I I think his, you know, lost all this is like, he might have been the fastest car, but they had to fight through rain and the craziness of the stage one to end up in that position to win this race, even with the fastest car. But I, I mean, I don't know what to make of the messaging about Bristol, that sort of thing. I'll be honest. I actually was having this, this discussion with someone this week where we were trying to figure out where we were last week. And for like at least a solid minute, neither of us knew which track we were at last week. And I was like, this schedule is ridiculous that none of us even know where we were. So I'm going to, I'm going to lean on for the uh, sake of, of entertainment. Sure. I love to think that there's like some subliminal messaging to being like, Hey, Bristol's a short track. That's when I get my comeuppance, you know, whatever sort of thing, that sort of stuff. I don't know. I mean, that might be a stretch, but I'm also going to say that I would not be shocked if I had done the exact same thing, even on the broadcast where I was like, Hey, Bristol next week, be like, what are you talking about? You idiot. <laughs> so It would be cool though. It'd be cool if he, if he was uh, making subliminal references to saying basically like a short track and that's where I'm going to get him back. Uh, yeah. There are definitely a lot of layers to it. Cause not only is it the next short track, but it's also where Kyle Larson essentially was helped by Chase Elliott last year when Harvick, oh, yeah. Elliott had been in the shunt with Harvick in which, he ended up with a damaged car and then he slowed up Harvick in a way that helped Kyle Larson win that race. So you could look at it in many, many layers of subliminalness, but I agree with you. I'll, I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. It's a 36 race schedule. It's easy for everybody well, involved to lose track of things. I think in his case, think about this. He has not thought about Daytona one time probably in the last month because they've been so well locked into the playoffs. What focus is he on Daytona at all, right? Like that's a throwaway race for them. In a lot of ways, it's a chance to rack up some stage points and get out of there, right? To get playoff points and that's it. So I would not doubt that he has probably not thought about Daytona one for the last month, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And do you want to get to Daytona eventually here and to talk about stage one? You're right. Like we saw some incredible racing. But before we leave Larson and Chase, you brought up a really good point, Parker, about the rule of thumb that I've always heard from Roger Penske, from Rick Hendrick is the only rule we have for teammates is that they don't wreck each other. And our cameras caught that conversation you were talking about with when Chase Elliott got out of his car, he immediately went to Rick Hendrick and Jeff Gordon was probably saying something to the effect of how does this fit in your, our team yeah. rules here? So, but Kyle Larson didn't wreck Chase Elliott. So if the context is, if the rule is, hey, um, the only rule we have for our teammates is don't wreck each other. Was it fair in the context that Larson didn't wreck Chase Elliott or just Chase Elliott. Maybe the counter argument is like, well, I didn't wreck because I'm that good a driver and was able to save my car. It wasn't mm-hmm. like he didn't put me in a position where I could have wrecked. I think it's more, he didn't finish second. Right. So like, I think it's more, Hey, 
we didn't wreck, but the move he made put me in a position to fall back. Where'd he end up there? Fourth. In the end. Yeah. Fourth. So, yeah, and, yeah. But at one point, he was going to fall back to like sixth on that. Right. You know, he was getting swamped. Right. I think that's the bigger issue, right? Like, you make that move, you make that pass, he slots into second, has a chance back at you, can't get you, so on. You know, go on, whatever. I think the problem is he ended up fourth, right? Mm. And it's that's the gray area of like, you didn't wreck each other, but you also didn't just pass me. You put me in a position to lose more than just a lead. I lost yeah. multiple positions and I never had a chance to get back at you. So like that adds to the frustration. I know for myself, like that would be the thing that really grinded my gears would have been like, I didn't even get a chance to come back at you, you know, as a teammate, like let's race it out. Give me a shot. But you didn't even give me a shot. So I sort of side with Kyle a little bit, but in that respect, I side with Chase to say, yeah, that would be really annoying and frustrating. And definitely you put it, it's, it's a question amongst those team members to be like, Hey, is that the line? Like just don't wreck each other. Or when I lose four positions or three positions, you know, because you did this thing, this yeah. move, is that too far? Certainly a lot of good debates and a lot of good points you're making there. A lot of ethos discussions about stock. I'm sure it's not happening. done. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> well, that, that was that sort of leads me to the next point. I mean, where, where do you think things stand with these two guys? Does it matter if they don't hash it out? I mean, can they race each other civilly without necessarily liking each other the rest of the way? <laughs> I think you got to find some common ground as teammates. Otherwise, you, you're in for a really rough patch, right? Like, it, I yeah. think I don't know of any really great situations where you just don't like your teammate. I mean, you're going to have to spend time together, right? There's going to be moments you're going to have to listen to each other. It, it, it's just, that's no fun for anyone, right? If, like, if you genuinely dislike that person, it's just not good. So I think there's definitely a reason to discuss it, right? And if they want to, you know, hash something out or Chase sits about, sits, you know, woke up this morning and said, hey, you know what? I should have taken the inside. Good job, Kyle, right? Yeah. I'll get you next time yeah. sort of thing. Next time, I won't make that mistake sort of thing. Like, I can see that being a case between those two as well. Certainly, if we were flying on the wall in the Hendrick competition meeting today, <laughs> we'd probably have some more answers. But yeah, we also found out they do that on Mondays and not Tuesdays. It's <laughs> only Tuesdays. Mostly teams do it Tuesday. Yeah. Or Rick Hendrick and Jeff Gordon. Must because of the, right to bed. It must be because of the Saturday Daytona race is what I'm guessing. But <laughs> That's probably why. So not only will the Larson move obviously be under discussion, there was another move in Saturday's Xfinity race that was already being discussed going into Sunday's race. And I know that when we were in our Motormouths call earlier today, I heard you talking about like that this was a big discussion Sunday morning, Watkins Glen pre-race among crew chiefs and, and people you were talking to. Ty Gibbs electing to send it against William Byron uh, for the lead in that Xfinity race, which essentially handed the win to Kyle Larson. When I watch that move, Parker, like I see that and I think maybe I've been watching too much IndyCar and F1 on road courses, but I see avoidable contact by Ty Gibbs written all over that. That was in the bus stop, I believe, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. You're the driver. How did you see that move? Is that move and Larson's move, are they okay in today's modern NASCAR road course racing that uh, like this is now fair game? I don't think the two moves, in my opinion, are really relatable in the fact that one, both cars spun out and one, you know, both cars got away with it without barely touching. Right. So the bus stop one to me was interesting because of the comments Ty Gibbs made afterwards, which was, you know, I had to send it in there because, you know, I had to win this race for my team. And I was like, OK, but there was like, what, four or five laps left? <laughs> I don't know. You've had one of the fastest cars the whole race. Like maybe discretion is better part of hour. Come out of the bus stop, 
into the you know carousel, give him a little bumper, get back beside him, win that race. Like I, I just think that's a little bit of a too black and white of a statement at that mm-hmm. point in the race. And the fun part was you mentioned the discussion on Sunday morning going to all these different teams, and I, you know I bounced around talking to different crew chiefs and teams trying to get information for the broadcast that's coming up Sunday, and. I went to multiple haulers and they would ask my opinion on it. And one cup winning crew chief was on Ty Gibbs side. He's like, hell yeah. He's like, and he's speaking right in front of his driver. I'm not going to give names, but he's speaking right in front of his driver. He says, I said, well, I think, you know, I think he went too far. I would have backed out. I would not backed out, but like on in there to where I felt like I could put myself in a position to get back at him in the carousel. And he said, no, if, uh, if you don't go for that, then you're no, you no longer should be a driver is what the crew chief said to me. And I was like, really? And he's a very analytical person. And I thought that's pretty fascinating to me. Like there were so many laps left. I think you're thinking like it was the last lap. It wasn't the last lap. Yeah. So I don't know. That part to me was interesting in that, like that there was, you know, cup level people that condoned that because then I went and talked to William Byron when we were under that before the cup race. And we had a like probably a five minute discussion about it. And I said to him, you know, your, what's your thoughts? He's like, look, I gave him all the room. Like I allowed him to be there because we were yeah. raced it out. And he said, the part to me that was frustrating was he wasn't going to make that corner. If I wasn't there, like, right. Right. Which is then, then that's where I thought the crew, I said to the crew chief, I said, but he wasn't going to make that corner. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like, right. What do you mean? What are you right. talking about? So right. I don't know if he was being facetious with me or whatever. The driver of that crew chief conversation never said a word about it. So he, I don't think he was in, in agreement. I think he was more on my side, but that's too much. Like that's, that's just going overboard. It's fun to watch. I love the entertainment. Not going to lie. Pretty awesome to see from the broadcast side. But I think from a pure competition standpoint, that's a move that I just think like, hey, if he could play that back, he probably, you know, thinks maybe I just back it up a tick because I could go in here side by side or, you know, give him a little bit of an edge to the center, cut back under him and nail him in the bumper in the carousel, move him up the track and get beside him. Right. Like, yeah, I view that as the move that we've seen so often at Watkins Glen and he could have easily pulled that off. And the 54 car was unbelievably fast. 18, the Joe Gibbs cars were in that Xfinity race, just remarkably fast. I mean, the 18, and this is not knocking Sammy Smith or anything, but I mean, he was two tenths faster a lap in those closing laps than AJ Allmendinger in front of him. And I'm like, and Larson and, you know, uh, William Byron. I'm like, okay, wait a second. <laughs> These cars are really good. <laughs> so they had some serious steam in those cars. And I think that's why that move was probably just a little overzealous. Well, I'm glad that you kind of had the same reaction I did. And again, maybe I've been watching too much IndyCar and F1 lately, but when I saw the Ty Gibbs move, I immediately flashed back to Nashville, where Joseph Newgarden essentially put Grosjean in the wall on this move on a restart and didn't get an avoidable contact penalty. And Newgarden's point, which I think the stewards certainly agree with, and I think I agree with, he was like a nose ahead when mm-hmm. they made contact. And that was what I didn't see with Gibbs and Byron. Like, as to your point, like Gibbs never really had the corner. To me, like if, if you have the corner, if you if you're a wheel ahead or you're alongside, okay, then it's just racing, hard racing, one of those deals. But if you don't have the corner, then it's seems to be overly optimistic at best. All you got to do is look at the line they run through there normally. And then where the, you know, where the 17 was and where he was, they were both all the way out of that line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, you're normally tighter than they were. So I, I just think that was, you know, just overzealous. And yeah. it is, I mean, Ty, Ty Gibbs is a hell of, I mean, he's unbelievable. I, I've, I've seen a couple things in the last couple months that I've just been like, all right, this kid is amazing. But, 
you know, that was a move that was just, just overdoing it. As for avoidable contact, don't ever want to hear that in NASCAR. Don't care. <laughs> don't want that ever. Nope. Not yep. a thing. Yep. Don't want to hear it. Those two words put together. Don't care. You know, that's, that's an oatmeal thing. They can keep that all themselves and IMSA can have that all they want, but I don't want to hear it in NASCAR because that's just not the way that, you know, that's not our racing. Our racing is a self-policing form of racing where now that you've been wronged as a William Byron, you know, you can go get him back and that's yeah. fair game. And yeah. same with Larson and Chase Elliott. You've, you know, you've been wrong. Go get him. Like that's, that's NASCAR and don't, that should not change. That's why these cars have fenders. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk stage one. Cause I think you're right. We had seen NASCAR racing in the rain before in the cup series, certainly seen a lot in the Xfinity series, but in the cup series, unfortunately our really only exposure to it was last year at circuit of the Americas, which was, you know, no way to, else to put it. it was a debacle, unfortunately, cause the rain never stopped in this yeah. instance. I think we saw the optimum rain race for NASCAR where the track dried across the, the course of stage one teams has this decision to make of when do you go to slicks Chase Briscoe and Johnny Klausmeyer decide we're going first and it pays off. They win this, yep. win the stage. And while there's all this other frantic scrambling and racing going on around, it sounds like you really enjoyed just watching all of that in full. I thought it was one of the coolest segments of a race in NASCAR history because you had 20 different strategies going on at once, <laughs> you know, timing wise in terms of, it was really two different strategies. It was getting on slicks or going, waiting for your fuel window to open, but you know, the amount of cars doing different, pitting on different laps, doing different things was just incredible. Plus, it was really wet and raining when we started that race. And what did we see? Like two incidents? The Cup Series is full of incredible talent to just be thrown into rain. 20-minute practice on the day before. You do a qualifying run, and then you jump in the rain the next day. With a car we've never been on, and a tire we've never been on wet with. Like, And boom, there's two incidents maybe. Like yeah. that is the level of talent in the cup series. And I just thought that was so cool. You add in as it dries that, you know, Chase Briscoe and Klossmeyer take this gamble to be the first on slicks and it pays off. And like the bravery in that, when you're coming out of the pits on cold tire, cold <laughs> slick tires on a damp racetrack, like that is the hardest thing in all of motorsports as a driver. Like there is nothing that takes such a leap of faith as doing that because you are going to go corner by corner straight away, curb by curb, constantly guessing for laps. It could be, you know, it might take a two laps or you're just guessing on the grip level and where to break and just sensing and feeling that out. And then you're going to see the second you pop a faster lap time than the leaders, every team is going to be like, and we're pitting. Or even halfway through your lap, they're watching your sector times and seeing how you're coming out. And their analytic programs are saying, pit, pit, pit now. Like, you know, this, the crossover has happened. I just thought that was the coolest thing in a NASCAR race, NASCAR Cup Series race to see in real time. We had the chance to let it all play out because there was no caution. And it was a cool finish. Michael McDowell's team, that's one of the coolest performances of the year in terms of Michael goes up there, gets to the lead loses it through this whole tire situation of Chase Briscoe getting on them so much earlier, then realizes that they're in such a good position because of what they, you know, when they got to those slicks and how fast they were in the wet, the wet, they could pit do fuel, basically do fuel only and put themselves on the right pit strategy against Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson. And if they had a faster car, which unfortunately for, you know, him in front of motorsports, the Hendrick motorsports cars were just in a zip code come to dry. They pulled off an incredible set of strategy there. So that was just, if you know, if you like strategy, bravery, great racing, 
awesome passing drivers and a little bit of contact. That segment right there was NASCAR 2.0 in a nutshell. It was awesome. And like you said, the drivers deserve a ton of credit because they did manage really difficult conditions with a plum, not a lot of wrecks, but give NASCAR a lot of credit too, because they delayed the start of the race about an hour. They could have started in the rain and, you know, enough drivers said, no, we don't think this is right. We've got puddling happening in the bus stop and, and around the course. And I've come around on this. Like I didn't always understand when rain racing doesn't make sense. But after watching the Rolex 24 in 2019, or watching F1 at Spa last year. Like, I understand that there are times when rain racing is simply untenable. Just because you can race in the rain doesn't mean necessarily that you should. And NASCAR hasn't had a lot of experience with that, but I think they applied the lessons of CODA well. They take a lot of grief. They make calls that I don't agree with at times, but this was a call that I really agreed with where they they waited. And I think waiting paid off not only in a great stage one, but also was just the right thing to do in general. Yeah, I, you're right. 100%. They did a they did a great job of that. And they looked at the radar and salt we were all seeing, which is, hey, look, this rain's gonna be out of here in 30 minutes to 45. You know what I mean? So it was like, we can start this race 10 minutes after it stops, because we'll get most of this water will drain off the way that track is set up. You know, Watkins Glen has really good drainage and, you know, good elevation change to get that water out. And then, you know, you had the air Titans out there pretty quickly and boom, we were ready to go racing. And it was the perfect amount of wet. Right. So great decision, you know, and that whole idea of like, what's too wet. I think that's been a discussion in motorsports for a long time. You know, you go back to what Monaco 1996, when was that Olivier Panis won and because of rain shortened race, you got a Monaco what was Iron Senna's big debut. Yeah. It was like in like a 80 low, something. Yeah. 80 fine. something yeah. where yeah. he like was amazing in the wet there in a, you know, really underfunded car. So, and they had, you know, they've stopped the race earlier or something because, you know, sometimes it's just, it's so much water. There's standing water, which becomes just a situation where you're aquaplaning and there's no driving skill, talent, nothing that can stop that. That's just like a, it's a physics issue, which is like, if the car isn't touching the ground because it's floating across water, uh, that's a problem. So I agree with them. You know, there's, we found the right amount and that's always going to be a, you know, judgment call in rain racing because it's just, but I think NASCAR and the industry worked really closely with the drivers and asked the right questions and looked at the radar and made the right decision. And it worked out to have one of the best first segments of a NASCAR race I said I've ever seen. Yeah, it was great. I, I've always heard, you know, rain is the great equalizer where you always see talent showcase, like you mentioned that Ayrton Senna breakout race in F1. But sometimes, as you said, the conditions, it doesn't matter how good a driver you are. You can't show it. So well, you know, kudos to We saw that. Doing. Yeah, we saw that just in 20 laps. I mean, you had Mike McDowell take the lead, you know, just showed, you know, he was on it in the wet. And then you had Chase Briscoe take the gamble and go from being, I don't know where he was. I can't remember, like 15th, 16th, 20th, maybe to being the leader. <laughs> like right. he took a gamble and like right. nailed it. So just pretty awesome to see. Uh, it's time for our Motor Mouse of the Race presented by eBay Motors. This is a new Ooh. feature in which we talk about a notable quote. And today, Parker, the quote is from Kyle Larson. Uh, he was asked about racing with Kimi Raikkonen yesterday, or Kimi also raced around Chase Elliott as well. Kyle Larson was asked, what was that like? And Kyle Larson said, yeah, it was cool. I think, you know, by the time I got to him, he was, he was kind of struggling. He looked like he was really loose in front of me and I was able to make, you know, quick work of him. So just uh, really cool for him to, you know, step out of his comfort zone and, and come play with us, you know, stock car racers. And, and it was more than just Kimmy. You know, the, the international drivers uh, racing today was, was pretty cool. You know, they were all, you know, I think I passed, 
you know, every one of them at some point. And, and it was fun watching them up ahead of me, you know, being really aggressive, you know, they're, they're as good as it gets when it comes to, you know, heavy braking and stuff like that. So, you know, I could watch people up in front of me, try to make a move on them and, and they wouldn't be able to make the pass. So that's just their experience, you know, playing part today. And, and it was fun to uh, be a spectator at, at points of the race. So you had the opportunity to see all these guys, you know, not just Kimi Raikkonen, Mike Rockenfeller, Daniel uh, Kvyat. Um, unfortunately, his race didn't go as long either, but there were some big names, obviously, in this race, which made it very special. What did you see? Did you, you kind of agree with Kyle? Maybe not even just in the race, but over the course of the weekend. Were you able to see, especially Kimi Raikkonen be 20th fastest in practice uh, without ever being in a next-gen car before? I'm sure you saw some things that impressed you. Yeah, I, I think Kimi's speed, I was asked this question last week and in, in the wall, which we do on the Motorsport MC YouTube page, I said he'll practice around like 20th, 22nd, he'll qualify around 20th, and he'll finish top 25 if he finishes. And he'll get to the top 10 through stages. And I think I nailed about every mark except the top 25 finish because he wrecked. But it wasn't his fault, though. wasn't his fault. Yeah, it wasn't his fault. <laughs> and he got to the top 10 through stages and, and actually made some passes in the top 10 there where he went from like 10th to 8th. He passed Chris Busher, Christopher Busher. He was awesome. I'm a little biased because he was like my boyhood idol. Um, <laughs> and all I wanted to be was Kimi Räikkönen growing up. So it was super cool to see him. I've got, I got to race against him in 2011 when he did the truck race, but I didn't meet him back then. Cause it was one of those things like don't meet your heroes this time. I didn't really meet him, but I got to interview him twice and he was super cool both times. And after the infield care center one, uh, I gave him a thumbs up and said, good job. And he thanked me and smiled. So I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. It was big for NASCAR just to get that attention globally with this new car, right? Which really opened this up. I think that's been highly publicized that this car being far more in line with global racing spec and sort of what we've seen in, in modern day racing times allows a Mike Rockefeller or Kimi Reckon to do, to do this as opposed to the old one, which I think Kimi alluded to this was just so out of left field of what they know, there was no chance of ever going to be in top 20 in that car. Like, as we like to say, why road course ringers went away in that time period of the mid 2000s, right? Was that it was harder to learn the nuances of a stock car than to learn to drive a road course, right? Like that is what became very apparent. So hmm. this car opened that up. Global attention was awesome. I, I did some early research on Google Trends and saw that Kimi Raikkonen searches and Watkins Glen NASCAR globally was like, skyrocketing on Google last week. So that was pretty cool. There was finished live TV there the entire time. The, the posse around Kimmy was insane <laughs> at times. Uh, but then it was also laid back. His family was there. His wife and kids were just chilling. And, you know, she's dressed the nines, just hanging out in a puddle there and Watkins Glen. And I was like, this is such a uh, difference from Monaco GP probably. But <laughs> it, you can see they were just enjoying the experience, having fun with it. And for the drivers, I, I talked to Larson about this. He and I hung out and saw it, ran into each other at dinner Saturday night. And we had some chats about this. And it was like, there's definitely a thought process that we see amongst racing fans. Like the best drivers in the world are in F1. It's been a slow build to inform people that that's not exactly the case. That's the best drivers that made it to Formula One, right? But there's yeah. amazing race car drivers throughout the world. And especially in the NASCAR Cup Series, and I think that, you know, this Project 91 is not only getting these really big names to come race in NASCAR, which is super cool. And it's super cool for guys like me and Kyle Larson, who grew up watching these guys and thinking, you know, those are our heroes. But then to also expose them and the rest of the world to the talent level that's in this series. Right. And I think that's a really, really cool thing. So it's accomplishing a lot of 
of different, you know, it's checking a lot of boxes. I think Justin Marks gets a, you know, massive round of applause for pulling us off in such great fashion and providing a really well put together team and car. And, you know, the whole Project 91, like fit and finish is amazing. The pit box, it says Project 91 in that sort of glitzy, chromish look. The branding is so well done. The social media is so well done. I just think it's such a cool thing. And for Kyle and those guys, like, I know that feeling where it's like, from just a quick moment, you come upon Kimi Raikkonen and you think, hey, that's that one world champion. That's pretty cool. All right, back to my job. You know, like, <laughs> I know that's what through his mind. It's like, oh, that's that's Kimi Raikkonen, F1 world champion. All right, back to my job. You know, like, all right, time to pass. So like, I guarantee that went through his mind. It happened to me when he erased him in 2011. And we look at motorsports in the 70s, 80s, night, you know, probably 70s, 80s was the last period. And then in the 90s and early 2000s, it became very specialized. But in the 70s, the 80s, the 60s, drivers drove everything. You know, we talk about Mario Andretti's and A.G. Foyt's and, you know, Jim Clark's and, and those guys, Parnelli Jones, that just jumped around and drove all sorts of stuff. They had to. That's how they made their living. And we've gotten that we're getting back to that. And now this is like, to me, the ultimate version of like, motorsports as a whole is no longer siloed. It's under this one grouping and it's connecting it for the fans by via the drivers going and doing this sort of thing. And yeah. teams like Trackhouse providing this opportunity and NASCAR allowing them to go do this test day at VIR sort of thing to give them some seat time because the modern day rules just don't allow any seat time, right? So it's all the parties working together from the teams to the drivers to you know the series, the sanctioning bodies, to lean into this and be like, this is great for all of us in motorsports. And to me, that gets me the most excited because that has the power to, to continually move the needle on something I'm very passionate about, which is that, you know, we're all motorsports fans. You just don't know it yet. If you don't, if you only like one or two and, you know, hopefully this continues to move that and, and show that. And, and the only other thing I'll say is that there was a joke amongst a couple of cup drivers and myself that were talking where they were like, you know, the only thing is I wish it was that easy to go do an F1 race as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who's building the Project 91 in F1? Yeah. Where's yeah, the F1 let's, car one? Let's get Wolf and Horner on the phone and, and make this happen. I mean, geez. Sure, yeah. Surely they've got enough money lying around with all their budget caps. You know, they've just yeah. got millions they lying around. Andretti, Red Bull, Mercedes, make it happen. <laughs> they won't let Andretti in. Well, you know what? We want a Team USA <laughs> Project 91 car now. What about yeah. that? There we Love go. It. They should have, you know, that's the type of thing where they would say it cheapens and all this stuff, but that's the type of thing where out of the box thinking for like a formula one that in three, you know, I predict in three to five years, they'll have to be thinking about that sort of stuff and they probably should be working on it now. Let's hope they are from your lips. Well said, great insight. That was why I asked you that question. And that was the motor mouths of the race presented by eBay motors. At eBay Motors, you can be your own pit crew with 122 million parts right at your fingertips. Get the right parts at the right prices. eBayMotors.com. Let's ride. So, uh, and before uh, we wrap up here with <laughs> Blaney, Truex, and Daytona, thanks for the positive reinforcement on the sponsor read. I think it was still uh, a new thing for me as a I thought you did journalist. great. Thanks, man. That's, uh, you probably didn't hear it, but uh, Rick Allen read these billboards that were just like perfect, which billboards and TV are like... <laughs> For those that don't know, are like, you know, just ad reads, right? We call them billboards. Yeah. And Steve, he's beside Rick. And so Rick had to do like these like last second, like, Rick, read these billboards, you know, as we come back from break. So he does them perfectly, just nails it, you know, pro TV guy. And then we go commercial quickly and Steve goes, man, Rick makes that sound like, you know, he's ordering on a menu. I'm over here hashing it up and cutting these things apart and 
stumbling through them when I have to do this. It was pretty funny. Anyway. Yeah. It's harder than it looks. Like yeah. a lot of things uh, in TV sometimes are. Well, speaking of like making things look easy, I, I encourage people to check it out. NASCAR and NBC Twitter account. Your interviews with Kimi Raikkonen, both from practice and post-race. I know that it might have seemed a little bit surreal for you and you didn't want to come off as like the fanboy, but both handled with a plum. And uh, I think I, I saw a positive you. reaction too on social, like where some people said, hey, when he doesn't get the stock F1 questions, they saw maybe a little bit more Kimmy than they're used to seeing. So good work. Hey, you, I went with the uh, familiar tactic that I've been using since I started this, and I'll continue to lean into for as long as I do this, uh, which is I asked drivers about driving. <laughs> what a concept. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes if you just ask them about driving, they're, they're willing to open up. And yeah. I, I, as you put it, I, I was resisting the urge to put on the full fanboy, uh, you know, <laughs> charm, but I, uh, I, I tried to keep professional and, uh, you know, he was super cool. So I, that was awesome. And it was a cool moment. I got some cool photos out of those. So, and I appreciate the fans and I made it on Reddit, uh, formula one, which is pretty cool. So oh, wow. that's the that first for cool. me. Yeah, that is cool. That is a sign of great respect. So we'll, we'll wrap up here and, and talk a little Daytona Parker. Uh, one big surprise coming out of Watkins Glen, I thought was Ryan Blaney and Martin Truex Jr. Just being so average, both complaining about their cars on the radio. We heard a little bit of the snippiness again between Martin Truex Jr. and James Small about how the car was handling. I think we knew Toyota was going to be a struggle on road courses and really nobody was that good aside from Christopher Bell, but that Ryan Blaney struggled when Joey Logano is finishing third and winning stage two. That surprised me. So both of these guys now come into Daytona still without a win, still what top five in points and potentially in playoff grid positions, depending on how things shake out, but they have no momentum. What do you make of those two guys' plight uh, going to Daytona. Truex has never won at Daytona. Blaney, obviously, is the defending winner of this race and nearly won the 500. But they've got a lot of guys. You know, the, the list is endless. You know, Bubba Wallace, Austin Dillon, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., all these guys, Michael McDowell, all these guys who could go to Daytona and win and snatch a playoff spot. <laughs> you know, these two, Blaney and Truex's teams, to me, the analogy I've been thinking in my head since yesterday was it's like, watching two heavyweight boxers at the end of like seven, you know, 17 rounds, just yeah. totally gassed trying to knock each other out. Like <laughs> it just felt like that's what that looked like yesterday. Right. Like it was just like, there's nothing left. Neither's got it. Like it's just sloppy and everything they got has already been out there. Right. And I mean, it's weird because you put it like, these are two teams that are on a points average points basis have been incredible all year. Like they're staunch, great race teams, but they just haven't got that one trophy to solidify themselves in that position. And then, and it's just funny that they're so close as well. So like, you know, these two teams are just in the same quandary a little bit. And now you mentioned, you look at Daytona, like there's gotta be what 15 cars that are going to go there thinking like, right. Let's just go win this thing. Like there's no reason not to. So this race, this coming weekend is going to be wild. I think for these two, I don't know how you play it, right? And I, I think for James Small and knowing you know his level of uh, anxiousness, he, he's probably not going to have a great week of sleep. Um, I think, <laughs> you know, John Hassler's a little bit more laid back, but he's pretty new at this, right? Like, this is a big deal. He's put together a great race team that's excelled all year. And now, just because they haven't won, they're in this position where, you know, the mark of being a team in at this level in the cup series and the way that the championship is designed, you know, you're about to get cut off from that if you don't find a way to make something happen. So I don't know how you play these 
that play this race other than for those two, you know, because of the point situation, I think they have to go race in the stage points, right? They have to. And then what you do in the third stage to me is interesting, depending on what the racing looks like, depending on what sort of aggressiveness is out there. And then how you race against the McDowell's, the Bushers, Stenhouse, uh, yeah. Ty Dillon, um, yeah. I mean, anyone Kozlowski, Chris Busher, like there's, I, I keep forgetting pretty much anybody who's outside. Well, they, the have to be in the, they have to be in the top 30, top points, 30 right? Right. Top 30. Me. So is Brad, is he top 30 now? I think Brad is, the, I think the guy who is outside the top 30 is uh, Corey LaJoy. Uh, Corey LaJoy. Okay. But I think, because I know I think, Ty Dillon is in. Yeah. I think everybody yeah. else we've listed, I think is eligible. Uh, yeah. Well, you add in Bubba Wallace. I mean, yeah. it's just like, there is, it's a massive group. So it's a heck of a design uh, for an entertainment side of things. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I couldn't imagine being in the middle of it and how you play this race. So those two teams, I don't know if I have any insight. And I, I did Ryan Blaney's interview on the post race and I asked him, so, okay, you know, how do you tackle next week? And he just said, you know, basically score 24 more points than him or something, you know, basically be one point ahead of him. I laughed because I was like, the way he said it just made me chuckle. Like, yeah, well, that sounds impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck doing that. So I don't know. I I don't think they know. And it's, that's a lot of pressure at this level. It means it's a huge financial difference for these teams to be in the playoffs versus not. A lot of pressure, a lot to be watching on uh, NASCAR NBC broadcast this Saturday from Daytona. Parker, always a pleasure having you on here. Really appreciate you joining the NASCAR NBC podcast. Enjoy Daytona. Appreciate it. And uh, we should say this is one of those races. I see this all the time on social media uh, from fans out there. So for the listeners, it's on NBC, but it's also on Peacock. Ah, so I'm glad you said we can that. we can with 100 percent confidence say this is one of those races It's on NBC network television. So you got no excuses there. Or if you're not watching it there, watch it on Peacock because it's on both. IndyCar viewers know well, IndyCar fans know well that you, you've been able to watch Peacock, NBC, no matter where it is. And it's yep. it's a great option. It's great. It's going to be available to NASCAR fans. I'm glad you brought it up because if you couldn't tell, I was not 100% sure if this was on NBC. <laughs> so uh, good pickup there. Uh, I appreciate the it's team. Been, apparently our messaging is working uh, from our boss to drill in my head that this is the case. So good job. I, uh, I knew that one for sure. I was like, it's on those two and I know it. <laughs> Thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We appreciate Parker Kligerman for joining us on the day after he put in a long day at Watkins Glen International doing his always sublime pit reporting. Parker then drove home to Connecticut, got back sometime after midnight, and still was more than accommodating and a very chipper guest on the podcast. As always, he brought some great insight that only an active NASCAR National Series driver has, and we are grateful for that perspective. And again, it was really cool to see Parker get the chance to interview 2007 Formula One champion Kimi Raikkonen last weekend. You can go to the NASCAR on NBC Twitter account if you missed it and want to check out those interviews. Thanks to motorsports manager Emily Conboy for coordinating Parker's appearance on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. And as Parker mentioned, it's the regular season Cup Series finale this Saturday under the lights at Daytona National Speedway. Coverage starts at 7 p.m. Eastern on NBC and also streaming on Peacock. And the post-race show also be streaming on Peacock and the NBC Sports app as well. Check out NBCSports.com NASCAR 
for detailed schedules, start times, and coverage as always. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.